Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of People, Places, Planet. I'm your host, Sarah Backer. Today, we will discuss Buzz Thompson's new book, Liquid Asset, How Business and Government Can Partner to Solve the Freshwater Crisis. The book explores how private businesses and markets are playing a rapidly expanding role in solving the freshwater crisis and outlines the potential risks that growing private involvement poses to the public interest in water. Author Buzz Thompson is a Robert E. Paradise Professor of Natural Resources Law at Stanford Law School, Professor of Environmental Behavioral Sciences at Stanford, and a Senior Fellow at the Woods Institute for the Environment. In this episode, he is interviewed by Philip Womble, attorney and hydrologist specializing in water policy and water markets. Philip is a legal postdoctoral fellow with the Woods Institute for the Environment and perhaps most importantly, a former research associate at ELI. And now on to Philip and Buzz. The central idea behind liquid asset is that the freshwater crisis in the United States and internationally will be best addressed by government and the private sector together, not one or the other. But as the book points out, private sector involvement and privatization in the water sector has been quite controversial. So what led you to write this book and why do we need the private sector to help solve major freshwater challenges? As I've been working in the water field over the last 10 years, I have seen a growing proliferation of private businesses working in the area, developing new technology, figuring out how to finance the needs of small water companies, developing impact investment funds in the water field. And I became increasingly interested in what could they contribute to the water field and what were the various challenges that they posed. I also have increasingly become aware of the need for innovation in the water field. The water field is a sector that is dealing with 21st century problems using 20th century technology and 19th century laws and institutions. And the private sector promises a lot of new ideas, new innovations in this field. So I have spent the last five to 10 years really looking in detail at the private sector. One of the ways I've done that is by teaching a course at Stanford on the business of water about how can we get more innovation, more resources into the water field and what's the role of the private sector. As a student in one of the early iterations of the Business of Water class, I can also say that there was really great interest in this topic. So why did you start the book with the story of Cape Town, South Africa's experience with Day Zero, where this four plus million person city almost ran out of water? I decided to start with Cape Town's story of Day Zero both because it shows the type of water crisis that the world faces today and because it shows what the private sector might be able to do. Day zero was the day in 2018 when Cape Town, South Africa anticipated it was going to run out of water because of a long-term drought that climate change had made much more likely to occur. Cape Town really didn't have any way of dealing with this particular problem. 
the private sector really rallied and came up with, I think, a whole variety of interesting ideas. You had the sort of typical companies that came in and said, hey, we can provide you with modular desalination equipment, or we can provide you with modular recycling. But there are also some other interesting stories. There's the interesting story of the Weston Hotel on the coast of Cape Town and built on an area that was previously wetland. It has parking levels beneath it. And the lowest of those parking levels was always being flooded by ocean water that was seeping down into it. And the Western Hotel suddenly had this idea, well, we're facing a water shortage. Could we take that water problem that we face, that salt water that's intruding into our bottom basement, and could we desalinate it? So they basically built their own small modular desalination plant in their basement, and they then were able to produce enough water to not only furnish the needs of their hotel, but all of the neighboring hotels. Another example is one that the Nature Conservancy came up with, another private organization. And the Nature Conservancy looked around and thought, well, Cape Town is highly reliant upon three large watersheds. And over time, those watersheds have been invaded by exotic trees and other plants that basically just started sucking up all the water. So the Nature Conservancy said, one of the things we could do is to go in and get rid of all of those invasive water-loving trees and replace them by native trees. And so they started something called the Greater Cape Town Water Fund, where Cape Town pays the Nature Conservancy to restore the native vegetation in all of those watersheds. And as a side benefit, it also provides immense employment for some of the local population. Thanks, Buzz. Another key lesson for me was that of resiliency in terms of diversity of supply sources. And so one of the reasons that Cape Town ended up in this dire situation is because they largely, at the time, were only relying on local surface water. And so the book mentions an interesting idea that similar to renewable portfolio standards and the clean energy space, that water technology or water sourcing standards could be required by government in, in a situation like that to encourage diversity of supply sources, resiliency, and technological innovation. You're absolutely right. As you point out, another lesson of Cape Town is the importance of diversifying water supplies, particularly in the face of climate change. Cape Town was reliant on those three watersheds. And when it just stopped raining, Cape Town didn't have any other source of water to turn to. One of the lessons that Cape Town has learned is the importance of having other sources of water. They could be recycled water, groundwater, desalinated water. And a lot of those depend upon new technologies. In the energy field, we have helped develop and commercialize those new technologies by having regulations that require diversification, the renewable portfolio standards. And it would be very useful, I think, in the water field to have something similar. It would both require local utilities to diversify their water supplies at the same time that it would provide an incentive to private innovation companies to come up with the technologies that we need in the water space.
you highlight two controversial ways in which the private sector has been involved in water allocation, management, and use. The first being privatization of drinking water provision, and the second being water markets. Proponents of these approaches have argued that they can bring needed investment, expertise, and efficiencies to the water space, among other benefits, by integrating economic incentives and profit motives. But critics have objected to this type of commodification of water resources with concerns about its impact on the human right to water, ecosystems, or other public interest. And so as some foundation here, I thought it'd be helpful to unpack the human right to water. This is a topic that has gained a lot of momentum lately, including internationally at the United Nations and countries like South Africa, and also in states like California. Can you explain this concept and how it's been implemented? Absolutely. There are public interests in water. One of them is the human right to water. The second one is the environmental interests in water, the public trust in water. The private sector may be able to help us to accomplish those goals, but the government is the one that has to protect those. So you asked specifically about the human right to water. I've always found it fascinating that of human rights, the human right to water was one of the most recent ones to actually be recognized. If you look at the United States as a whole, there's only one state that explicitly recognizes a human right to water, and that's California. California adopted a statute in 2012 recognizing that everyone has a human right to safe and affordable drinking water. But even California waffled a bit. So they passed a statute that Part A said, hey, there's a human right to water. But Part B then said, but this really isn't enforceable. And you can't rely upon the human right to demand more from government than we're willing to give you. So moving to the first of the two issues around commodification that I mentioned to privatization of drinking water provision, how can privatization be squared with public interests like the human right to water? Privatization is basically private supply of, of drinking water. A lot of us get our water from our local city or from a governmental agency. Privatization would be receiving your water from a private company. And about 15% of the people in the United States receive their water from private companies. But the reason I started with privatization and water markets is that they are the most controversial area of private involvement. Public policymakers and lawyers have to think about how to ensure that, in fact, when we have private water companies and have water markets, we do protect the human right to water and also the public trust. If you look at the history of water supply in the United States, it really doesn't seem to make a huge difference in whether you have a public or a private water supply system as to how well that water supply system ensures that all of its residents have access to safe and affordable drinking water. This is an area that the government needs to do a better job of protecting no matter what the water supplier is. But in some areas, there's actually evidence 
that the private water suppliers do a better job than the public water suppliers. And that might seem counterintuitive. And it's not because the private water supplier is saying, we need to get out there and protect the public interest. It's instead generally because private water suppliers are regulated by public utility commissions. And those public utility commissions frequently step in and insist on affordability of programs or other protections that the public agencies frequently do not provide. And for me, it points out that private water suppliers can actually do a great job, but they have to be regulated by a public utility commission that's alert to and trying to protect the public interest. As you pointed out, and this is highlighted in the book, the empirical experience with privatization and various forms of drinking water provision has been quite mixed. And so some of the cases have, as you were relaying, been able to achieve some of the benefits that proponents tout of having the private sector involved in this space, and then others have reflected some of the concerns of critics in that area. And so what I found important in the book is that it points out that the ways that the private sector can become involved in drinking water provision are really quite varied from full acquisition of a drinking water system Systems can be leased, they can be managed under contract. The private sector can collaborate with governmental entities through public-private partnerships. And that context has shaped the outcomes of private involvement in this space. As you point out, privatization can mean a whole variety of things. It is relatively common today for a lot of public water suppliers to enter into contracts with private companies to build large infrastructure projects where the private company provides the financing and the expertise to implement the project. But the key elements of the project are all under public control. That's frequently referred to as privatization. And it doesn't raise the same issues as, for example, a private company coming in and actually acquiring a public water supplier and running it as an investor-owned utility. You also mentioned the key role that state public utility commissions can play in regulating private sector involvement in drinking water provision. And the book points out that the stringency and the role of these PUCs has varied quite a bit across states. And so I'm wondering if you can speak to that difference. Again, whether or not we are able to actually solve the water challenges that we face in the United States and the world is going to depend upon how well the public and private sectors can work together. Each of them has an important role. The private sector has a variety of resources it can bring to water issues. It frequently has expertise from other areas. In privatization, that means that the Public Utility Commission has to have the type of relationship with the private water suppliers to ensure that the rates that those private water suppliers charge is fair and that those private water suppliers are running their business in a way that meets the public interest. That can be, as it is in California, for example, a requirement that the private utility ensure all of the 
customers have adequate and affordable access to safe drinking water. Interestingly enough, there's no similar mandate on the public side. So that's why when you have a really good public utility commission, you can sometimes end up with policies that are more alert to the public interest in private water suppliers than in the public sector. There are also a lot of studies that suggest on the whole, private water suppliers actually do a better job meeting Safe Drinking Water Act standards than public water suppliers do. That's partly because a lot of those public water suppliers are very small companies that may not have the expertise or the funding necessary to meet all Safe Drinking Water Act standards, where the private entities are frequently larger entities that can come in and manage smaller areas if necessary in a way which complies with the Safe Drinking Water Act standards. Moving to the second controversial topic, water markets. I'm wondering if you can unpack their past and potential benefits and concerns and highlight how this has played out in the experience with the largest agricultural to urban water transfer in the history of the United States in Southern California, which you detail in the book. San Diego, for a long time, has relied upon imported water. And they became concerned about the long-term reliability of the imports that they had been dependent upon. They have, over time, turned now to desalination, to recycled water. But one of the things that they saw was that there is a neighboring agricultural area the Imperial Irrigation District, that has a very large right to Colorado River water, and that has a significant opportunity to conserve water. And so San Diego approached the Imperial Irrigation District and ultimately struck a deal where the Imperial Irrigation District is conserving water, and in return for conserving water, they are paid by San Diego to then transfer some of that water to San Diego. And that demonstrates the benefit of water markets, that opportunity to find areas where somebody might be able to conserve water or somebody is using water for a marginal economic purpose and then pay to transfer that water to a location where it can be more valuably used. But that same deal shows the potential risks that water markets pose. So as I mentioned, the Imperial Irrigation District had a very large water right to Colorado River water. And a lot of the water that wasn't consumed was flowing into something called the Salton Sea. The Salton Sea is basically a human-created reservoir. It exists only because the Imperial Irrigation District was bringing in so much water. Well, the water that the Imperial Irrigation District is conserving is water that previously would have flowed into the Salton Sea. As a result of the transfer, that means that the Salton Sea is going to be shrinking over time because there's less water going into the Salton Sea. Now, you might think, is that a problem? Salton Sea is this really artificial body of water. 
but we've destroyed a lot of our natural wetlands in California. And so migrating bird species now see this immense body of water to stop and rest and feed. And so as the Solomon Sea shrinks, that's posing a risk to those migrating bird species. Maybe even more importantly, as the Salton Sea shrinks, it's also revealing the bottom of the Salton Sea, which is sediment, which over time has been laden with agricultural chemicals or nitrogen. And when that soil gets exposed, you get a big wind and that just blows it into the local community. And that's posing a health problem. So whenever we see water markets, one of the rules, again, for government, one of the rules of law is making sure that we protect the public interest at the same time that we take advantage of the opportunities of water markets. So as you alluded to, the Imperial Irrigation District holds high priority rights to about a quarter of the mean annual flow of the Colorado River and has been central to efforts to avoid reservoir levels dropping too low in Lakes Mead and Powell, the two largest reservoirs in the United States. So it's expected that IED, the Imperial Irrigation District, will conserve up to 800,000 acre feet of water, which is just a lot of water over the next few years. And so the story that you tell in the book about this water transfer and the role of water markets continues to be quite relevant today. I think water markets are going to be a key element of discussion as the Colorado River Basin states try to deal with that long-term shortage of water that's available in the Colorado River. You would expect that if we had well-functioning water markets, that if you've got a shortage of water available in the Colorado River, that you might just be able to solve that through markets where people who need additional water could pay somebody else to conserve water. But water markets don't work very well. Because water markets are sticky, you have to have the government sometimes come in and say to a water agency, look, we need to balance the water supply here. You appear to be using more water than you need. You have two options. You can enter into a water market transaction, or we might bring a regulatory proceeding against you. Later in the book, you explain how water markets have not only been used for water transfers that encourage efficiency and move water between consumptive water users, but has also grown to include environmental water transfers where water is purchased or leased from a consumptive water user, like an agricultural water user, and then transferred or otherwise protected or acquired for the environment. And as the book explains, rivers and streams across the world have in many locations been fully allocated or over allocated. And so that means that in a lot of these regions, there is little, if any, water left for the environment. And while regulatory programs sometimes aim to restore freshwater ecosystems where they exist, they have often come up short. And so your book takes a deep dive into the way that various types of environmental water investors have engaged with water markets to attempt to buy back water for ecosystems. 
Can you help listeners understand the role of water trusts or other similar organizations in the United States and Australia? And have they succeeded? And what are some barriers they've encountered? As you point out, we face a major environmental challenge because we have over-diverted water from our rivers and streams. Environmental groups have said, we're going to continue to push for governmental regulations, but there's another way in which we can try to return water to rivers or streams or wetlands, and that's by purchasing the water and restoring it to the environment. One of the examples I give in my book is a nature conservancy program in California called Bird Returns. And Bird Returns tries to solve the problem that we've destroyed most of our natural wetlands. And so the Nature Conservancy thought, well, could we pop up wetlands? And the idea is, is that the Nature Conservancy uses artificial intelligence to determine where migrating birds are likely to be in the near future. And then they go to primarily rice farmers and they say to the rice farmers, how much would we need to pay you in order for you to flood your fields with water? And the Nature Conservancy runs this like a, a reverse auction where they then take the lowest prices that farmers have demanded and pay those farmers to, again, create these artificial wetlands. As you know, environmental water markets are a topic that I've also worked on. And one finding from my research has been documenting that, uh, at least in recent years in the southwestern United States, essentially all funding for environmental water transactions has come from government. And so I was especially interested in the book's discussion of impact investment funds and their role in restoring flows for ecosystems. These funds aim to both help the environment and generate high financial returns for private investors. So I'm wondering how they've been able to do that. Have they succeeded? Environmental organizations have realized that they can use water markets to try to buy water and put it back into the environment. But one of the issues that they faced is, well, where are they going to get the money to actually acquire the water rights? And Philip, you've done these absolutely fantastic studies that have shown that government frequently provides that money that's necessary to buy the water and put it back into the environment. I hope that government continues to do that and simply increases the amount of money that they put environmental acquisitions. A second option is donations from environmentalists who are willing to actually put money into buying the water. But that's only a fraction of the money that we need in order to help to restore the environment of rivers, streams, lakes, and wetlands. So the most recent thing that environmental groups have looked towards is impact investment funds, where people will provide money to the environmental group to make investments that can both pay a return to the investors, as well as help restore the environment at the same time. And one example of that that I talk about in the book is an Australian example called the Murray-Darling Basin Balanced Water Fund. And this water fund has latched on to the interesting phenomenon in the Murray-Darling Basin that 
when you need more water for wetlands is during wet periods. During wet periods, there's a lot of water that flows into the wetlands, but because of all of the water that has been extracted, it's not enough water that it fully inundates those wetlands. During dry periods, those wetlands would naturally go dry. So what the Nature Conservancy has done in this Murray-Darling Basin Balanced Water Fund is during the wet periods, when you need additional water in the wetlands, they take the water supply that they bought using the investor's money and they donate that to the environment and ensure that the wetlands all have enough water. During the drier periods, the Nature Conservancy instead sells the water to the farmers. And this is the period, of course, when the farmers desperately need the water. And so the Nature Conservancy both makes money during the dry period and that they can then pay the investors for the use of their money at the same time that they are improving the environment. The Nature Conservancy took that idea and now they've embarked on something called the Sustainable Water Impact Fund which is buying properties in a variety of countries like Australia, United States, Chile, and then managing those properties to both conserve water and actually increase the return of those lands, which are generally in agriculture. And so what the Nature Conservancy is doing with its partner in the Sustainable Water Impact Fund is finding ways of buying properties and then managing them so that you increase their return and you increase water supplies at the same time. A key theme throughout the book is that the water sector faces an innovation deficit. So what is this innovation deficit and how is the water sector behind other sectors? It's hard to actually calculate exactly how much innovation is occurring in a particular space. But one way of measuring innovation is by the number of patents that are issued. You would expect that as innovation went up, that patents would go up. And I've compared the number of patents issued in the water sector versus the energy sector. They're similar. They're both supplying a critical resource to society. And if you look at the comparative number of patents in the water sector and the energy sector, water has always lagged a bit. There have always been more energy patents issued than water patents. And that might just be part of the nature of the two sectors. But what's interesting is that starting in about 2008, the number of patents issued in the energy sector shot up, whereas the number of patents in the water sector flatlined. And so that suggests that as a result of governmental policies or the amount of money that we're investing in innovation in the two sectors, that we were able to dramatically increase the amount of innovation in energy and not in water. And that's what I mean by the innovation deficit in water. One aspect of the book that I enjoyed is that it really is chock full of constructive policy recommendations. 
And to highlight one, you suggest the adoption of a public benefits charge for water, similar to that which California has used for electricity sales. Can you describe what a public benefits charge is, how it could work for water, and how it might help spur water sector innovation and efficiency? As background, we do not pay for water in the United States. What we pay for when we get our water bill every month is the cost of actually transporting the water to our homes and also purifying that water to the degree it's necessary. So we're paying for the service. We're not actually paying for the water itself. Even though when we take water out of a river or stream, that has an environmental impact. The idea behind an environmental water charge would be that states could require that everyone pay a price for the water itself. And then the state or local governments could then use the funds from that charge to pursue a variety of public interests. It can use money from that fund to help restore the environment. We could use the money to ensure that everybody has an affordable water supply and that all water supplies are safe. In addition to that, the government could also use some of the charge to promote innovation. So a water charge would permit us to pursue a variety of valuable public goals. And an important aspect of a public benefits charge that the book points out is that water rates are often low in many water systems due to political pressures to keep them low. This has hampered innovation. And as you mentioned, a public benefits charge, which is somewhat decoupled from those political pressures, might be a way to spur innovation. In many cities, we have aging infrastructure. And that's because the water rates are so low that the local water suppliers don't have the money necessary to keep the infrastructure up to date. So one of the things that we need to do is to also have water rates that should cover all of the costs of running an efficient modern water supply system. One of the objections is, well, there's a human right to water, and there are a lot of people who can't afford their water right now. So isn't the idea of a higher water rate inconsistent with the human right to water? And the answer is, they are totally consistent. There is no reason why you can't have a higher water rate so that you can cover all the costs of supplying water and having a modern water supply system, while at the same time having a affordable rate structure where the poor members of society are provided water at an affordable rate. In South Africa, there's actually a policy that everyone's entitled to a basic minimum amount of water for free. And it's only once you go beyond that minimum amount of water that you're charged for the water. We've spent much of today's podcast discussing how the private sector currently plays and could play a significant role in water management and policy. But we're on a podcast hosted by the Environmental Law Institute. You're a legal scholar and a practicing attorney with a ton of experience working with both the public and private sectors in the water space. Based on your experience and your work on this book, what are unique ways that lawyers can contribute to enhanced public-private collaboration on solutions to major freshwater challenges? And how might new or even seasoned lawyers listening in become involved in work in this area? We need in every state a focused attention on ensuring that we have the laws that 
make sure that everyone has access to affordable and safe drinking water. We need lawyers out there who are working to enforce the public trust doctrine or to take other actions that are necessary to ensure that we have adequate water in our rivers and streams. So we should just start there, that the laws provide the important baseline that is necessary for the private sector to achieve the type of innovations they can. Buzz, I've really enjoyed discussing your book. I would highly recommend the book, both for specialists who've been working in the water field for many years or for generalists who are discovering and learning about this topic for the first time. Again, the title of the book is Liquid Asset, How Business and Government Can Partner to Solve the Freshwater Crisis. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at eli.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.